welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. In this episode, I am pleased to bring the conversation I have with Samuel Otwell Soulsby. Sam is a senior researcher with the NFR project Voices on the Edge, Minuscule Text in Early Medieval Latin Culture at the University of Oslo. He has a bachelor's in history from the University of York. He has an MPhil in medieval history from the University of Cambridge and also a PhD in history. Much of his interest are in medieval manuscripts, Christians and Muslims in the medieval world, um, and all things early medieval diplomacy. He is the author of the wonderful book, The Emperor and the Elephant, Christians and Muslims in the Age of Charlemagne. And that is the book we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about Charlemagne and his context. We talk about the viewpoint of the Muslim world with Charlemagne, geographical regions of Abbasid and Umayyad empires. We talk about prestige diplomacy, which is a central concept in, in the book. We talk about religion, Islam, and Christianity, the four legal schools of Islam, Carolingian religious values. We talk about gift giving, why that was important, and how the elephant, which is from the title of the book, was used as a gift and why that's important. Uh, war and peace with the Umayyads in the ninth century, and how the relations end uh, during this age. Um, this was a, a really, really fun conversation to have. Uh, Sam has such a wonderful way of taking uh, medieval thoughts, you know, stuff from the 8th and 9th century, and making it very interesting. And also, as we do in the conversation, we connect it with how do we still have concepts of gift-giving or prestige diplomacy in today's society, geopolitically or whatever. And so while we don't talk about kind of current events, we do tie it in to show, like, how do we see some of these things, maybe in a more modern sense, but these some of these concepts still persist, you know, 12, 1300 years later. Um, so it's all all very relevant. Uh, it was, again, a real, real uh, treat to have him on and talk about his, his wonderful book, which I greatly enjoyed. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. Get over there, subscribe. Uh, like, share with your friends, uh, and tell folks about the podcast if you if you enjoy it. And so uh, now I bring you Samuel Otwell Solsby. I am here with Sam Otwell Solsby. Uh, Sam, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you. Well, it's uh, wonderful to be here, Xavier. I'm, uh, I'm absolutely thrilled uh, to, be, to be taking part in this. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, I, the the pleasure is all mine. And uh, you have written a, a fantastic book. It's called The Emperor and the Elephant. Uh, as we were talking before we started, it's a beautiful cover. Um, it's absolutely fabulous. Uh, Princeton University Press does a, a marvelous job. And uh, you can judge the book by its cover because the book is covers is, is fantastic, but the content inside is wonderful. Uh, subtitle is Christians and Muslims in the Age of Charlemagne. Uh, so we're going to talk all about that. Before we do, just kind of give us your sort of potted biography professionally, academically. So where, where, uh, where, where, how, where's your career taking you uh, and where are you at at this point and uh, all the things that you're currently doing? No, uh, well, the, the, thank you so much for such, such a wonderful introduction. So I, um, so my, my background, as, as you can hear from my voice, uh, I'm, I'm British, uh, I'm English. Raised in a bunch of different European countries, uh, so it's sort of traveled traveled around as, as a kid. And I, in retrospect, that might that might have ended up shaping you know leading to doing doing research that, that thinks about 
connections between different different places across uh, across Europe and the and the Mediterranean. Um, so yeah, but, but uh, return return to Britain for university, and I really got interested in this period of history, the medieval period, and very specifically the early medieval period, uh, while uh, doing my undergraduates at the University of York, which is a fabulous, fabulous place to fall in love with the medieval period, beautiful medieval city, fabulous program, kind of, and that, I, I saw the darkness, so to speak, kind of, um, when I was there, and then, and then kind of carried on sort of, you know, with um, postgraduate study at the University of Cambridge, and that's where a lot of the research that eventually sort of uh, uh, you know uh, that now appears in this book sort of took place there at the at the you know while, while I was work, while I was while I was working in Cambridge and there again that was you know tremendous stuff. I've now uh, you know I've, uh, I've now since sort of uh, embraced the the uh, the wandering life of of the nomadic academic and I'm um, so I'm currently now based at a uh, research projects at the University of Oslo, um, which I where I'm which I'm very very much enjoying. I get to work with. A lot of medieval manuscripts, which is always fun. There's something wonderfully tactile about getting getting to work with actual actual physical manuscripts, and it's you know, and, it, and it's really a fab, fabulous department and a fabulous program. Kind of, I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm now involved with. So it's interesting that you say about kind of your your kind of upbringing and stuff because the the book um, has this connection between Christians and Muslims in this age period now people may have different ideas or understanding of you know christians and muslims interactions at uh, maybe more modern periods or other periods but um this period in particular is 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 not something that i've again i'm not a, i'm sure scholars you know that study this period and know this but for 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 myself and maybe for listeners might not make that association um and so you you kind of start the book by talking. Obviously, we you know Charlemagne is a, is a key figure here, so you can kind of give his introduction if you want, just for kind of a primer there. But what were some of the diplomatic reasons for Charlemagne interacting with Muslim rulers and their subsequent uh, consequences? I mean, there's there's a large bit of land between the kind of uh, periods and the and the, the the locations of some of these empires. So what was his kind of motivation of saying like we need to kind of work with these folks and we should do that. Um, so maybe give the primer on, on Charlemagne and this in kind of the context and then why the diplomatic reasons for for interacting with the Muslim world. Uh, absolutely. So um, Charlemagne is one of the, the defining figures of medieval Europe and he um, he rules uh, a, vast, you know, a vast empire that covers most of Western, of Western Europe, France, Germany, Italy, bits bits in between basically. Uh, and he, he does so for a, a very long time, uh, 768 to 814. Uh, in the year 800, he's crowned uh, emperor in the West, and he's the first emperor in the West since the, the end of the Western Roman Empire. And, um, and his reign is really important, both as a, he's a very successful conqueror, but he's also very important for shaping um, a, a, loss, a lot of what's to come. So he, he presides over a massive cultural renaissance, though everyone think about, but he also presides over a huge legislative program that sort of shapes a lot of the landscape of of uh, of Europe that then that then goes on from there. So he's a really key figure in a lot of ways. And part and part and parcel of all that is uh, as uh, as you mentioned, a, a very a very extensive series of diplomatic relations with the Islamic world as as a whole. And there's yeah, and there's there's a lot going on there. And I think part of what's you know the 
the thing to remember here is that Charlemagne is dealing with a lot of very different uh, uh, Muslim groups. He's going, you know, so on, on the one hand, you know, most famously, we have the Caliphate, and that's by far and away the biggest Muslim uh, Muslim policy of this period. It's ruled by the Abbasid dynasty, uh, in this case, um, Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who may be a familiar name from the Thousand and One Nights. Mm-hmm. Um, half the empire is what's now Iraq, but the empire still stretches the world, or the, you know, across North Africa, all the way to what's now Pakistan. So there's a, it's a huge empire stretching on there. And Charlemagne's in, uh, in communication with them, but he's also doing business with uh, rulers in, in, in Muslim Spain who are often opposed to the caliphate. And he's also uh, you know, in contact with people in North Africa. And that's, that variety is quite important for, for, for keeping in mind when, when we try to ask why is Charlemagne doing this? What's, what's his, his interest? Uh, the, and like part of kind of the real, and one of the things that I want, I want to argue in the book is that there's, there's actually quite, quite a lot of, of, of different reasons that are at play depending on, on who, on who he's talking to and, 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 uh, and when. But the, the, but the, the big, yeah, the, uh, the, the big, the, the big core, uh, sort of core, you know, core issue for why he's doing business with Caliphate, why he's doing business with, with her, with uh, Harun al-Rashid comes, comes down to prestige. He's building a new type of regime in his empire and doing business with the Caliphate helps that, helps him do that by, uh, by, yeah, by, uh, by bringing in spectacular gifts, by bringing in air, air embassies and envoys. And in doing so, Creating that the condition the conditions that are, that uh, that allow him to both to build his image and carry out the transformative changes that I, I uh, that's yeah you know, that's that you know that 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 happen in his reign. Mm. It's it's very interesting because you uh, you you very nicely put in the book this this element of prestige diplomacy, which we'll get into in a minute. As you're mentioning there, which I thought was absolutely fascinating because <clears throat> he gives a kind of gives a peek into some of the motivations or um, kind of intentions behind some of the things that were going on and how people in the world interacted. I think most people, what you think about in the modern day, just for a minute, there's a certain interaction that foreign leaders have with each other. Now, granted, we have less we don't really have empires anymore i mean maybe some people argue against it, but we have less we have more of states right you know these you know the countries and things like that but there's a way in which people interact with each other and there's a way in which diplomacy works and so i think obviously there's a modern way in which we do that but i think it's really interesting to kind of peel back the curtain and see well how did other foreign leaders and and that had massive stretches of land interact with each other and why and at different periods so uh Let's let's go on the other side for a minute. So, what was the I guess the Muslim <laughs> excuse me? What was the Muslim side of things of the interactions with the Carolinians? You know, what's what's the context with the eighth century, and how from the Muslim world and that uh, perspective, what what was in it for them to deal with with Charlemagne and other folks? Like, why were they going to be able to to interact with them, and and what did they get out of it essentially? No, uh, absolutely, and you know, excellent, excellent question. And, and I think, I think, in a way, that gets right to the heart of what I've been trying to do with this book. Because part of the problem we have is the majority of our sources that actually talk about this diplomacy they come from Charlemagne's empire. They're, they're written in Latin. They're written by people who they're often close to Charlemagne, or, or but at the very least, they kind of they share his cultural perspective, and they they're 
they're outsiders to the Islamic world. And that's which makes it not necessarily easy to reconstruct why Charlemagne does does what he does, but it, it certainly makes it easier than 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 for than for the, the Islamic world. And the our sources, particularly for the Caliphate, um, are not are not very full on why on in fact they, they often don't don't discuss this this diplomacy at all. And what I and what and that means that when this when the subject has been discussed in the past, it's normally from Charlemagne's perspective. And what, what I really want, want to do with this book is actually sit and think, okay, we don't we don't have a li- the literal thing of what what this what this looks like, but we do know quite a lot about the Caliphate. There, there are quite a lot of sources. There's quite a lot of work being done. So so knowing what we know about the Caliphate, what what does this look like from from their perspective? Uh, and, and I think I think one thing is yeah, so we have um, so. Um, in the you know, in the seventh century, we have you know, the Arab conquests sweeping across the Mediterranean, sweeping across Central Asia. This huge caliphate that stretches all the way from the Pyrenees to Afghanistan, yeah, and that's you know, and and there's 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 a lot of momentum there. And what changes in the middle of the eighth century is that 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 empire, that unity begins begins to split. So you have. Uh, a revolution in 750 that brings a new dynasty to power, and one of the offshoots of that are, are on the, on the, of that revolution is that various bits of the empire start to break away. And m- most relevantly for us, that includes Muslim Spain, which where where someone from the the overthrown Umayyad dynasty of the Rahman the first makes it makes it Spain and sets up his own his own in- independent kingdom effectively there, and that and that creates this kind of. Multipolar, multi-like. There, there's still a big center. There's, the caliphate is still the big power, but but it is increasingly starting to starting to break and 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 shake up a bit. And like, and that's uh, and that kind of creates the environment where Muslim rulers might be interested in doing in doing business with Charlemagne. Because um, so so if someone like Harun al-Rashid, for example, like the one thing that makes this work is that in a way he and he and Charlemagne actually have quite closely aligned. Uh, diplomat, diplomatic desires, right? Charlemagne wants uh, wants to make it, to make a big splash with uh, his domestic audience. So does Harun al Rashid. I think we we have this sort of slightly false image of Harun al Rashid. We have this image of this almighty caliph, one who you know who's you know, who rules a vast and glittering empire. And w- when we actually look a little bit closer at him, uh, he's a very skilled politician. He's a very successful ruler, but he's one who's having to deal with constant crisis. He's he comes to the throne in a slightly in slightly murky circumstances. There's an almost perpetual swell of rebellion in all places, and he really needs to kind of set set that set the tone of uh, of strong and capable leadership. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, and that's and that's in a way actually is what what makes his relationship with Charlemagne really work because they both have similar you know, a similar desire to to really bring that kind of you know to, to like you know, to to be seen to be doing. Proper ruler stuff. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, I want to ask about prestige diplomacy, but I guess just one quick thing here, just so listeners have this, I guess, in their mind, <clears throat> kind of making it a, a association with modern day. So, what was the mm. the area for modern day countries that uh, Charlemagne ruled over? And you talked about Muslim Spain, and I'm assuming Portugal as well. Um, yeah. And some some folks may know that history that there was uh, a period for for a while where uh, Muslims dominated the, that region on the uh, the Iberian Peninsula. But the um, I guess is it is it the same 
caliphate? Is it the same group that's over out in the east in Iraq and in uh, Pakistan, modern name Iraq and Pakistan? Or was there kind of some division there? So I guess talking about geographically, so we have a picture yeah. in our mind, uh, so that way we can know what this kind of diplomacy was looking like. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so, uh, and that's, yeah, so as, as, so, uh, so as you say, Muslim Spain, as you correctly say, like, we're really talking about the Iberian Peninsula here. So there's, so, um, yeah, well, so we're also including Portugal here. Um, we often call it Al-Andalus, which is, is, is the name that is, uh, is the, the, uh, the name they call it, um, begins with an invasion in seven and seven eleven from North Africa. And that, you know, um, but from, Seven seven five six. It's being uh, it's it's being ruled by a different dynasty to the one that's um, to the one that's further east in uh, based in Iraq, and this is the Umayyad dynasty. And there is real tension between the Umayyads of Al Andalus and the Abbasid caliphs further further east, because the Abbasids came to power by overthrowing the Umayyads elsewhere. So the um, so so um, Al Andalus is being ruled by. Uh, a, a guy who's effectively a refugee who fled the massacre of the rest of his family, managed managed to make his his way his way west, and then in the chaos that came after and around that uh, that that revolution, was able to seize power in uh, in Spain and uh, in Al Andalus. At this stage, he doesn't uh, he doesn't claim to be caliph. He, you know, he he is the he claims to be the Emir of Cordoba, and it's not. Until uh, a couple of centuries later, that his descendants will start calling themselves caliphs. Mm. But there is definitely tension between uh, 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 between uh, between Al Andalus and the caliphs, and that's sort of why the Carolingians ends up dealing with them separately. There is a, there's a, you know the um, other thing to bear in mind, of course, is um, Al Andalus, Muslim Spain, is a lot closer to key Frankish territory to, to Charlemagne's empire than the caliphate is. Right, their rights. Yeah. Yeah. Either side of the Pyrenees, they're very they're very close neighbors, and that that has a real impact on on the way the way they uh, they they interact with each other. Yeah, I think that's important to know. I mean, even today, I mean, you'll see many people may be surprised to know, but I mean, Spain is, a, is in terms of ethnic groups quite diverse. You have Andalusia, you have uh, obviously Barcelona, you have uh, you know down south, uh, you have uh, up there in uh, Bilbao. Uh, you have all these different types of uh, ethnic groups in different parts of Spain, Spain with different histories. And so mm-hmm. in in series of things that go on. So it's, it's very in- interesting how that part of, because it really is a peninsula. And even even the same when you, if, if people um, visit Portugal, you'll, you'll see a lot of the influence from that period still oh, today and their architecture absolutely. and some of their aesthetics. And so it's, it's, it's quite, quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you know, I mean, and you know, and, I mean, but all, and also this is the period where a lot of these things are start are starting to come out. I mean, because another another you know, another another very distinctive group within the Iberian Peninsula right now are, are of course are, are Catalans and Catalonia, and it's it's precisely in this in this context we we like, and you know, it's important to say no one in this in the period we're talking about uses the term Catalonia or Catalan. Mm-hmm. But but if if you're thinking about the history of 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 Catalonia, it's it emerges in this point in this in its and it's in there's you know, so and if you if you go around modern Catalonia today you'll find lots of streets named after Charlemagne because his mm-hmm. his period is sort of seen by many Catalan nationalists as the as the birthplace of a Catalan identity and a Catalan, uh, Catalan you know, so there's so there's there's a whole range of things happening at this point. 
Yeah, well, in, in modern times, I mean, uh, Catalonia wants to, or, or or very much believes they are independent, an independent uh, country, mm -hmm. and so there's they continue to have that whole <laughs> uh, 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 debate there. Okay, so so maybe define for us uh, prestige diplomacy, since it's a, a major theme in the book. And uh, yep. you can talk about frontier diplomacy as well, if you want, as a comparison. But Absolutely. Yeah, what, what are these uh, concepts? Yep. So broadly, prestige diplomacy is, is a term I've, I've been sort of, I've been using in, in, in order to try to think about a specific type of diplomacy I see happening between Christians and Muslims in this period, and very specifically between Charlemagne and his family and the, uh, and the caliphate out, uh, out in the east. And the idea with prestige diplomacy is it's diplomacy that's primarily aimed at a domestic audience. So you're, you're doing business with a foreign power, but, but the real significance is less what you're doing with the foreign power, more the way that the way it appears that's the folks back home. Um, and that, and that might sound, sound like a bit of a backwards way of, of going about things, right? What's, what's the point of sort of talking, of talking to outsiders if the people you're, you're really trying to talk to are your own people? But actually, that's it's it's a thing. It's a, it's a phenomenon we're actually fairly familiar with ourselves, kind of in, in the modern world, right? If you think about sort of foreign leaders, you know, desperately trying to get a photo op with, say, the president of the United States or or the Pope or something like that. There's the idea of of that you know that's being seen to be dealing with a, a foreign leader, particularly a prestigious foreign leader, is kind of it boosts your standing at home. It makes you know, it makes it, you know, everyone see that you're being you're being dealt with seriously. You're handling the big matters of the day. There's a kind of, but there's also a glamour that comes to it, right? There's a real sense that you are working on a plane above everyone else, and that that includes both the ordinary people, but also potentially dangerous elite figures in your in in your realm as well. You're you are the person you know, who deals with, and, and that's you know, and so and you know, and that and and because of that, that kind of shapes. The nature of of your interaction because it, it means you're, you're doing business with people who are impressive, they're powerful, they're wealthy, but they're not perhaps right on your on your on your doorstep. There's there's a kind of safety you you can do business with them because it's it's there's there's a because, precisely because of that distance means you don't have to worry too much about doing anything that's gonna that's you know that's you know that's gonna cause that's gonna cause difficulty. And above all, you're really looking for like tangible things like presents, gifts. Big, you know, fat, yeah, exotic items that you can you can parade in front of people to really kind of show as as a tangible thing for what what this what this prestige diplomacy is doing. Is that sort of analogous? I mean, it's obviously not going to be a one to one, but it's sort of analogous to how the U.S. is kind of with China, right? Oh yeah, that yeah. like you're, you're, you're the fact that you guys are in the conversation, you're the key play, uh, um, uh, players. You know, in ac global economics, in uh, trade, in uh, you know what have you, you know foreign foreign types of things. Um, that you know that it's a another. I mean, I guess you could say there are sort of empires of sorts. It's not we don't use the terminology, but big country, a lot of people, big great on power. economics, great power. Um, and yeah, well, and, and, and but also, piece. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, China is a really perfect example in this case, actually, because. Because mm. um, so one of the one of the really tangible examples of prestige diplomacy is uh, is is the elephant here. Right? Sort of uh, Harun Rashid gives Charlemagne this elephant, uh, and China and China's a really proficient uh, at 
exotic animal diplomacy, right? This is the famous panda diplomacy, right? You kind of, mm-hmm. you know, unlike, you know, kind of, you know, how, uh, and, you know, and, and China's been very skillful at this over the course of the 20th century, sort of initially giving pandas as gifts to very, very so, you know, as, as, a, as a really high, and, and now now they, they lease out pandas, but it's a really effective form of soft power, right? So, you know, kind of countries, countries want pandas, they kind of, they, they want to put them in the zoo. It's a really, it's a really powerful Sign of being of being interconnected. People mm. people love pandas. They want they want to see of course, them. Of course, and, and you know, and and for China, this is this is, this is an, another yet another thing they can they can offer if, you mm. know, for for people who are are working with them who are playing nice with them. And there's mm. there's a, you know, and it's it's a really it's a really effective. Yeah, and I and I think it wins. There are differences, but I think I think one way we can we can look at sort of Charming's dealings with Harun Rashid is it's it's a medieval example of panda diplomacy in action. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, it's just, it's a, uh, well, it's it's interesting how there's a lot of similarities there. So, okay, so talk about I guess just a little bit, kind of a kind of a, a general overview, if you will, of the uh, Carolingian and the Umayyad relationship. That there, oh, yeah. there, you mentioned it earlier, but what was the kind of we'll we'll get to the Abbasid kind of relationship a, a little bit later. But what was that kind of relationship? Yeah. Uh, you know what? What's the kind of what was the like overall pulse of it, if you will? No, absolutely. So the so the relationship with the the Umayyads of Al Andalus looks in many ways very very different, and I and I I, I characterize it as frontier diplomacy, and yeah, you know, and and yeah, you know, and a big a big part of what's what's happening there is they again we have two relatively large powers. These are you know the Umayyads of Al Andalus and the Carolingians are the two biggest um, biggest powers of Western Europe. They're right on each other's doorstep. And there is friction a lot of the time. There is kind of the, they're both quite aggressive powers. The Carolingians are an expansionist power. Uh, the Umayyads, you know, are, you know, themselves practice aggressive, aggressive raiding and warfare. There's lots of scope for things to go wrong here. Like, kind of, they can, both powers can hurt each other, but bad things can happen. And that's, in a weird way, actually encourages diplomacy. Um, the, uh, um, the, you have the, the, Precisely because things can go can go so wrong, both both powers keep tabs on each other. There and there's there's a lot of effort to try to try to manage manage things when if you know if yeah if if war if war looks like it's 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 getting out of hands and you know so so we have a a complex complicated relationship of both of, of war but also uh, also of peace and that that you know and there are there are more or less constant lines of communication happening. Everyone is 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 very carefully paying paying attention to each other, but in a, in a way, this is a lot more high stakes. The, 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 both powers can do each other serious damage, mm-hmm. and the, the the analogy. And this is this is perhaps one that comes more naturally to a British person than to an American. But is think of something like the nineteenth century great game between between Britain and Russia on the on the borders between India and Central Asia. This is mm-hmm. this is you know. A relatively high stakes affair that involves involve, you know involves a whole whole series of, of relatively complicated um, um, relations. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because the way you're describing it, I feel like sometimes maybe people, and myself included, at a different point, some people may may have think that like, you know, well, did did folks back in this period, you know, it's so removed from us, right? You know, we're talking. 1300 years ago you know 1200 years ago the folks just kind of you know they didn't have many of the sophisticated things we do now and did they just was it more brute force they just go in and they would just you know kind of pillage towns and they would just a lot of war and just 
barbaric ways of killing each other. And and then maybe if they just didn't have anything to do, they would just, you know, they would leave each other alone. But I think, you know, this is a very, again, pedestrian elementary way of explaining this. But I, I wonder, I, again, I don't want to put too much into it. So you tell me, we, and I don't want to compare to current day. But when you we say diplomacy, I mean, there, what you're describing is a kind of sophisticated way of having, in some ways, more um, interest with a bigger empire, bigger ethnic groups, a lot more administrative power you need to use, and how to do that with another kind of entity or empire. Um, I guess the question here is, is you know, how sophisticated was it at, at that time? Um, you know, were, I mean, did, did, did they have a G7 summit? And yeah. <laughs> right, you know, like how, how, what was the kind of relations, I guess, in that diplomacy? You, you talked about the gift no. giving. Oh, no, what no, else? That, uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, so, so one thing to bear in mind is that there's, there's no, there's no such thing, strictly speaking, as a professional envoy in this period. There, this, this isn't set. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're very used to this idea that you have. You have permanent ambassadors, you know, who get mm-hmm. sent over. They reside in the capital of, of something, like that, and they're and they're kind of they're, they're permanently there as a presence. And that's 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 not a thing. So so in the in the you know, so instead, what what happens is you know, there's a ruler. You know, if we're thinking at the level of states here, like you know, a ruler decides, okay, I need to send an embassy to to such such. There's some something something's going on. They pick someone they trust to be, you know, to be, to, you know, to, to represent their interests, mm-hmm. and then they, yeah, and and they get sent off, and you know, we'll we'll go to the court, we'll, you know, we'll we'll, we'll transact business. It'll it'll probably take a while. There'll be there'll be meetings, so deal deals will be will be hashed out, communications or well, that what will happen, and then and then the end, and then the embassy comes back and and reports back and, and you know about 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 what's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so so on that level, there is. There isn't that kind of that that's that same professionalized structure of permanent permanent ambassadors. What there is instead is is uh, a network of sources of information. It's and it's, it's quite clear that everyone involved, but particularly when when we think about Omayyad Al Andalus and the Franks have they they've they've got they've got people kind of they've you know there are there are that the, they've got. Yeah, we might call them spies. We might we might call them informants. But there is a constant supply of information going going back and forth that kind of helps fill in the gaps and you know and and, and make you know and make sure you know and make sure no one, no one's operating with you know without um, you know in in the dark here. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting how you know people are 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 different in different periods, but at the same time they're not. And it's interesting to see kind of the overlap there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about uh, you know generally because uh, we'll lead up to some of the stuff in the Muslim world. But how did in the ninth century? Again, this is just we're making a generalization here. But how did Muslims typically view the West or Western Europe? Um, and you know how is that documented by various Islamic historians and things like that? Yep. So you know, and um, you know, and as as uh, as I think, I think the way the the way you frame that that question suggests, we're we're obviously talking about a huge area with a you know, huge, you know, loads loads of, of different people. So so essentially, loads of loads of of different views. So the um, 
So I think I think sort of the dominant thing, if you were if you were say to walk the streets of Baghdad and ask ask people, um, well, would would probably be be for a start that they don't spend much time thinking about Western Europe at all. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a kind of it's it's a distant place. It's not a particularly wealthy place. It's you know the you know and the, it's got a bit of a reputation for savagery. There's also quite a strong idea in their mind that kind of that people are shaped by climate and that's mm-hmm. you know and that's. And that kind of Europe is—it's a bit northern, it's a bit dark, and that's you know, and like so, they're very brave, good fighters, but like not not necessarily the, the brightest kind of. You know, and like, so that's you know, and that's and that's 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 an idea that kind of comes out in a lot of a lot of the the, the geographies. The idea that sort of well, kind of, and yeah, and, I mean, ironically, of course, they're getting that from the Greeks, right? They're, they're reading Greek climate, yeah, and, and yeah, and there's this, this idea that um, so there's yeah, there's very much that there's 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 also an idea that they're quite warlike, and that's and 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 the, so one one of the other things you know if, you, if you're walk, if you're chatting to someone on the streets of Baghdad they might they might say if you if you were to say the word Frank they they their first, one one of their first associations might be with swords because um, Frankish swords are the best they go for a high that they they get sold in Baghdad and, and when they do it's for a very high price and there's a there's an idea that Western Europeans in particular the Franks are they are dangerous. They're, they're dangerous fighters, and and that's that and that's something that that that's they're often admired for for being disciplined, for being courageous, and that's and that's kind of in a way actually one one of the backgrounds to to work to the, this diplomacy. I think is an, is an awareness that sort of it's a it's a bit of a big deal if the Franks are, are sending em, are sending embassies because they're a bit dangerous. Um, there's you know there's you know. Religion also comes and say into into this the, into this dynamic. Um, Western Europe, it's it's a place that's known for not not uh, for not not being um uh, not being Muslim. They're Christian, and that that helps. That's people of the book. That's you know you can you but like but none, nonetheless that's you know that that again kind of marks them out as as you know a little a little bit beyond uh, a little bit beyond the pale. So there's broadly. Insofar as your your average person on the street in Baghdad is is thinking about Western Europe, it's probably not necessarily in very in 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 very in very positive terms. So uh, it's interesting. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I mean, I think I think even people today probably have very limited or impoverished views of places all around the world, and no, it's nobody's fault, and probably vice versa. So. Um, Okay, religion. <laughs> so, the, the, as I mentioned, the subtitle is Christians and Muslims. Now, <clears throat> um, these uh, two religions don't always play nice. <laughs> they have some. They have some. Uh, some spats. They have some disagreements, so to speak. <laughs> um, so, and so, I, I, I want to first talk about. Um, uh, the Islamic, uh, the four schools of the Islamic uh, law that came about in the eighth and ninth centuries. So obviously, there's an interesting thing here. So folks will remember that with the Prophet Muhammad in the middle of the seventh century is the kind of genesis of Islam, and in that way, when you think about it, uh, at least as a formal religion, Islam is pretty young. Uh, it's the new kid on the scene, if you will. Um, obviously you had Jews, obviously you had Christians, uh, and you know, I mean, really, if you, if you make an argument for it, 
it really was Constantine in 312 or whatever it was that makes Christianity start to become more widespread. It was less widespread in the first and second century. And so, you know, you have religion kind of really coming online as it's kind of married with uh, political institutions and obviously with, you know, conflict and things like that. So we'll talk about, you know, uh, the Jewish folks here and Judaism and how that comes into play. But um, tell us about, I guess, these four schools of Islamic law and how close that, I mean, again, this is very close to the origins of, of, uh, of, of Islam, how they did or didn't follow some of those Islamic laws when dealing with, you know, the Western world. I mean, yeah, and that's, I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting sort of context sort of to sort of think about. I think so. So, so one of the things that really that's really starting to happen, well, certainly by by the eighth century, is you have a, com- a community of Muslim believers who are sort of having having to develop institutions to work out what it means to be to be a Muslim, what it, what it means to do things in the Muslim manner. I mean, because you know, you start off with a world uh, in, a, in, a, in a world where sort of what what Islam is, what it means to be a Muslim, is relatively straightforward because you ask the prophet what it is, or or you ask one of the prophet's closest companions, and the and and you know, and that's and that sort of that that creates a sort of an, you know, an immediate sense. But obviously, people die, like the empire the empire expands, and so so but so by the by the eighth century, you've got a world where like you know, there is basically no one left alive. Who you know? Who you know? Who, uh, who know you? Know, who uh, who, knew, who knew Muhammad? Who knew uh, uh, who knew any any uh, any of his followers? And as a consequence, you're 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 starting to have you know, to have to try to put together you know, institutions, rules, laws for like for how to try, uh, to, try to systematize mm-hmm. this you know, this stuff, this and this material. Like, you know, and, I mean, the big advantage they've got, of course, is you know, is is um, you know, like so many of like the centers of learning of the late antique worlds, Egypt, Syria, so are, are all you know are part are part are part of the, of, the, of this of this new caliphate. You have a whole range of very very clever and and, and committed Muslims who are in a position to really sort of start thinking about about this stuff. And one of and one thing that sort of emerges here is you have you know a lot of you know effectively sort of legal specialists who who start kind of start putting together ideas about kind of what's what does it mean to be a Muslim? You know, what are, how do you, what, when, yeah, what are the rules? What are, and how does that interact with the law? Uh, and that's, and that's the context where the four schools emerge. And, and they're, and they're kind of the, and, and they're, they're effectively the survivors over the course of processes over, and which, in which particular teachers come before and their, their students come before. And like, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and to this day, they are the four dominant schools of, mm-hmm. of Sunni Islam. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of the, but not all of them are are, are necessarily very you know, particularly interested in dealings with non-Muslims, at least at least without without, without the caliph uh, outside the caliph. So so particular schools, the Hanafi school, the Shafi, uh, um, uh, starts start become sort of the only at least have the most explicit ideas about about what you know, how you should do. So and. But the the sets of rules they come they they come up with, which are often laid out in documents called CR, are often fairly uncompromising. They sort of they they tend to divide the world into a couple of different houses, mm-hmm. a dar house. Um, so you have the the dar al Islam, the house of Islam, the house of submission. If we literally translate Islam, and that's basically the place 
where where you know, where, where which is is run run by Muslims. So the caliphate, but you know, also the, the, that wider the wider that 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 wider Muslim place, and at least theoretically. Everywhere beyond that fits into what you might call the Dar al Harb, the House of War, hmm. and that's that. You know, and and that's and that's effectively a place which is is not where when when where, where where political authority is is not legitimate. So effectively, like the only legitimate political authority is that run by Muslims hmm. because they are, as as it were, the only the only people who who are you know can. Affect it's yeah affect uh, you know, who who are you know can effectively be be trusted but also have have the legal have the legal and moral status and and, and also do so so everything else is a state of injustice a state of tyranny and theoretically part of being a good Muslim like might is is you know is you know is is trying trying to expand the house the house of of Islam at the expense of the house of war create you know, creating. Uh, yeah, uh, more more space, more peace mm. through through that struggle. However, the, uh, the you know, various you know, uh, uh, like you know, various uh, legal figures at the time start hypothesizing a third house, and that's a house a house of truce, a house of a house of peace, and that's mm. a place where yeah, you know, where it's not it's not part of the the house of Islam. But it's not also, but it, but it, but it's also not part of the House of War. It's not. It's, you, you don't have a legal or a moral obligation to go and fight against it. Quite, uh, quite the opposite. Because you've got a treaty with them, because you've got an agreement with them, you know, you, know, you should actually live, live, live in peace with them. And that's, and like, in, I mean, even that there are there are limits to that you're you're sort of you're supposed to sort of have strict time limits to your your treaties. You're supposed to have an idea that kind of. Basically, this, this this should all be part of the big of the big the big program of expanding of expanding the House of Islam, but in, in practice, like you end up with these, you know, the uh, these these workarounds, and it it helps if you look at Muhammad's career. Of course, he makes lots of treaties with 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 non-Muslims, and he's very clear you need to honor those treaties. So, so that's so, and that and that kind of creates sort of. The precedent which which allows a Muslim ruler who's listening to these these legal experts to work out ways of doing business with non-Muslim rulers that doesn't involve an assumption that sh- that you're going that sh- you you have to be at at, at perpetual war with them. Mm, that's very interesting uh, because you know I mean um, religion is serious stuff. Uh, you know this isn't just a couple of ideas. I mean this is you know divine this is from you know the supreme being from god you know and the people will take that serious now they definitely took it serious you know oh, yeah. 1200 years ago so i mean this was you know very serious so it's interesting to see again i think a lot of the times i think i mean i've done it myself too at different points we we tend to flatten certain these kind of ideas um but there is some interesting complexity there uh even oh, within absolutely. some of the kind of ways in which they have uh, rules or laws or things like that. And, and, but I always, that's fine, but I always find that that's interesting when you're having to interact with people that have a fundamentally different way <laughs> of living their life and having, you know, essentially the same God, you know, tell you the same or tell you different things um, and very, very strict adherence to that. It's very interesting to see that kind of flexibility there. 
Uh, absolutely. Well, and I think in a way, one of the things I really like about diplomacy, particularly sort of diplomacy between you know between, di- between different groups that, that are a long a long way away, is the the way that sort of diplomacy forces you to meet in the middle in certain uh, in certain places, and it's yeah. often interesting. So, like, so, so for example, um, very on a very basic level, it's really hard to do diplomacy uh, if uh, if envoys. Aren't protected, right? You you kind of need on a base level. If I if I send an ambassador, that ambassador is basically untouchable, right? And that's and that and that's that's still that's still like kind of a rule we, oh, we, yeah. you know, oh, we, yeah. we have today, right? Kind of that's that's yeah. like ambassador like, comes, oh, you got to have good security when they're there. I mean, they're kind of absolutely. untouchable, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they're untouchable. You can't harm them. You mm-hmm. got to make sure you got to protect them, and that's you know, and because that, that's essential for communication. Even even if you're at war, even if you're kind of right, yeah, you, you got to keep those. But you, know, but but how, but how you get there is, and that, and that that's that's relatively constant, right? If for, for diplomacy to happen, diplomats need to be safe. But how you get there ideologically comes out of the culture of the ideology of your space. So, so for example, in in Western Europe, in the age of Charlemagne, kind of the, the justification comes out of Roman law. So there's there's you know, so Roman law is you know, says that says that diplomats are are, are entirely safe that. That then goes through kind of these um, any kind of Christian, you know, early Christian writers. Uh, chap in the seventh century, Isidore of Seville is very important, and it gets down as the idea of the law of nations, the Euskentium, and that's yeah, and that's that's the one they cite when you say when they explain why you can't touch it. That's it's against the law of nations. Where you know, so Islam, of course, has the same idea, but they get there from a different a different direction. They they instead say, look, you know, there are numerous stories, numerous hadith. Where the Prophet Muhammad makes it very clear that even if a diplomat is being rude to you, and like you, you have these stories about diplomats being very rude to Muhammad, you know, basically blaspheming, and Muhammad still says, "No, no, can't, can't, can't touch, can't touch this guy. He's, you know, he's safe. He's a diplomat." And that's you know, same, same idea. Like diplomats are safe, but the way, the way you, the way you get there is, is, you know, is, is culturally and ideologically kind of based on where you're coming from. Yeah, this is very, very, very interesting. So what about for Carolingian kind of diplomacy? What, what was it like for them using religious you know, figures as diplomats? Um, and I believe this is before, so 1052, right, is the, the Great Schism. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so we're, we're a couple of hundred years before that. So I can't, I'm a little fuzzy here. The Universal Catholic Church was already established. Is that right? Or or the precursor to that? What was the kind of... Yeah. On the other side, for 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 Charlemagne and, and for folks before and after him, more Christian. But what was what did I guess Christianity look like there at that time in the eighth and ninth century? Oh, an excellent question. So, so uh, so 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 Charlemagne is intensely pious, piously Christian. Um, as you know, and, and he's he's from an, an intensely sort of pious, um, piously Christian world. It's it's theoretically a universal Christian Christian church. In practice, there are sort of yeah, you know, there are there are kind of there, you know, there are distinctions in in, in like in, in both both in practice and 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 in theology. Um, it's not always obvious because people are talking to each other from 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 such a distance. But you get but there's a real anxiety about. Uh, about are, are you doing Christianity correctly? And indeed, one thing that really runs through Charlemagne's kind of reign is his kind of, he wants to standardize kind of liturgy. He wants to standardize theology. He wants because he's aware that there is a huge amount of variation within his own empire. Never mind across the Mediterranean. And that kind of 
that real urge to sort of try trying to get things right is kind of is right at the heart of what he's of of, uh, of what he's doing, and that's yeah. And he's he's aware that you know, for example, in as, as you alluded to in in the Byzantine world, um, you know, the Eastern Roman Empire that which is in Cre- which is Greek speaking at this point, mm-hmm. um, where, which is where kind of the or, you know what we now think of as the Orthodox Church is going to come. There are some things that are different, but like basically they view themselves as 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 the same church and they are yeah and that's and is is one thing that caused them a great deal of anxiety when things like the iconoclast movements break out and yeah they they're very worried about worship of idols they're very worried yeah and so and and that's that's precisely because they see themselves as part of the same church mm, mm, yeah but um but uh, but in insofar as as you know using kind of Christ, you know christian religious figures as diplomats Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's very standard at this uh, at this time, and partly that kind of comes down to um, the fact that um, I say there's, there are no professional diplomats this time, um, and senior senior religious figures, bishops, deacons, abbots, uh, they they often have very very serious political you know, uh, political duties. They're often advisors to the king. They often act as his his agents. So it's you know, so acting as diplomats is very much an extension of their normal role as as administrators as as advisors. So yeah, so that's that's sort of that you know, say, and that's and that yeah, that's something that happens between between Christian powers. Mm. In a way, one thing that's quite interesting of me is is the way in which Muslim uh, rulers use use kind of um, these Christian figures as as diplomats. It's, it's a little bit hard to see. Um, in my period, because it's um, we don't have, we often don't know exactly who who the diplomats are, but the rulers of Muslim Spain are very adept at you know, because um, Al Andalus at this time has a majority Christian population. You know, the, the, the people running the show are, are Muslims, but the vast majority of the population are Christian, and they you know, and yeah, and, and and that church and the, and the Christians are mostly left to their their own devices. You know, and they and they have their bishops, they have their priests, and so on. And you know, the nice thing about about a bishop in the Iberian Peninsula is they're going to have good Latin, right? They're going to they're going to, and then they have a you know cultural competence. So so the rulers of Al Andalus often use the, these these bishops from their own land as diplomats because you know they've got the language, they've got they've got the cultural competency already. So you know, so it's it's not uncommon for Muslim rulers to use bishops as diplomats when when they're communicating with them um, with with Christian rulers. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes a lot of sense at the time. So, just real quick, I guess what you, you, I was—I mean, I wasn't really expecting or not expecting it, but it was just—I guess the the, sub, the subtitle is Christians and Muslims. So, I was, I was wondering, I was like, well, where did where did Jews come in here? Where, where's mm-hmm. what's going on there? And you you do mention that the Jews were instrumental for Carolingian di- di- diplomacy <clears throat> with the Islamic world. Um, Maybe just you don't have to go at length about it, but just you know, kind of a footnote right. of sorts. Where was what was their kind of role, or what part did they play in this kind of diplomacy piece? Yeah, oh, absolutely. So, um, so you know, you have Jewish communities, um, you know, throughout both you know the Carolingian worlds, Muslim Spain, and also also in in the in in the in the wider Caliph, which um, uh, the uh, and and you know the. So, so we can say right away that at least at least one Jewish person is 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 absolutely crucial to this diplomacy, and this is a chap called Isaac, who's part of of Charlemagne's first embassy to Harun al-Rashid. Um, it's not 
it's in some ways it's not a very lucky embassy. Almost everyone else dies on this, but Isaac survives, and he's he's the guy who brings brings back the elephants back uh, uh, back back to Charlemagne. So he's kind of so there's so there's clearly at least one one Jewish person right at the heart here. But there's but but the um, but the Carolingian dynasty employ uh, a lot of Jews. You know, we uh, we, we see them sort of you know, they they're they're often acting as as agents for the for the Carolingian rulers, and particularly with Spain. So it's, we can see. Charlemagne's son and grandson sending, you know, um, um, sending Jewish people with jobs and missions down to, you know, down to Spain. So there's their claim, but and I, I think part of what's happening here is that there's there's an idea that you know a lot of a lot of merchants are Jewish, in particular a lot of the merchants who do business in the Mediterranean, who travel to the Caliphates, who travel who, who travel to Spain are Jewish. And they they you know, they're familiar with a lot, a lot of those places. They have contacts and so on. So if you're if you're thinking about terms of transport, in terms of getting from one place to the other, having having Jewish people involved in this in, the, in, in this makes a lot of sense. I also suspect that they, they, they you know, that some of them may also be be helpful as translators as well. If they if they're traveling from one place to the other, there's you know there's they you know, they may be more likely to have both Latin and and Arabic. Mm. I mean you know and obviously these are these are sort of yeah, a minority within the Jewish community, right? Yeah, most most Jews are not are not are not traveling are not traveling the world this time. But there are, but the yeah, but then yeah, but there is you know that like I suspect there is a that there is a Jewish mercantile community who I, who I think really help enable these 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 uh, these, these communications, and and also and also probably are, are good for for passing on information as well if they're kind of traveling from place to place. That that they're probably providing a lot a lot of kind of context for for the various rulers involved. Yeah, I, I, as you're as you're talking there, I just I'm just thinking about. I think it's so important for people to realize that historically, um, and I think throughout time, we typically have a kind of one-dimensional way of viewing everybody is in conflict. The Jews mm-hmm. hate the Muslims, and Muslims hate the Christians, and vice versa. And around and around we go. And look, there's certainly a lot of hate to go around, <laughs> right? Right. Oh, you know, yeah. it, we're, we're, I don't want people to be misled that you know we're just painting the finer sides of these interactions. I mean, people had wars and they kill each other, but it's not always like that. No, and no. it's there is a way of I think, and again, we're talking you know eighth and ninth century, a way where people are at the very least doing relations with each other mm. or cohabitating. Um, Absolutely, and that's important. I think for people to understand that you can live side by side with people that have fundamentally different ways, uh, different rules and laws, and holy scriptures, and that is possible. And that is possible in well, all over the Mediterranean. It's just completely. You have Northern Africa. You have obviously, you know, Greece and, and Italy, and then. All the way out to what we now know as the Middle East, and obviously you have here in, in, over in, uh, in in Western Europe, you know, spanning large regions, and and there's still this ability to have this kind of functionality at the very least, and I, I think oh, that's absolutely. an important point. And, the, the, um, and I suppose also one on the on the other things I'd, I'd say here is that I think I think I think we we kind of have uh, a direction in our mind where we sort of where, where we kind of we look at ourselves and we think you know I mean. Yeah, that kind of of greater enlightenment, greater tolerance. As we sort of we go from this sort of terrifying kind of stage of intolerance and violence and hostility, and you know, and and get, and yeah, and that's you know, and and progress progress goes in a straight line. Yeah. And I, and I and I actually kind of went 
So uh, you know, one thing that I find very interesting about this period, in a way, is that you know, this is this is not an age of glorious kumbaya, sort of everyone, everyone, everyone getting on right. Like there is a lot of hatred. There is, right. you know, you know, like there is there are holy wars. There's, but but in a way, this this is actually like considerably better than things are going to be in say the next couple of centuries. Right? There's kind of the I mean the this is a couple of centuries before the Crusades. And of course, and the Crusades have their own complexities, but like this is this is a couple of centuries before before that. Um it's also like and again, like you know, there is there is anti anti-Jewish sentiments up here. It's like, you know, we, there are some we have some really nasty elements and source. But actually by and large, the age of Charlemagne is not is not a terrible time to be to be Jewish. Right? And you know, and he 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 and, and his descendants uh, actively intervene to slap down kind of naked anti-Semitism. There's there's more than more than one kind of person who actually finds himself booted out into the cold because they're 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 too they're, they're too unpleasant. Like this is like this is not the world of say the t- the 12th century. Like you know, this is mm-hmm. there are you know kind of even when we're looking at, at medieval time, there, there is this like this eighth ninth century time is actually is that you know, like you can you, there is a lot of that. Things change, and they don't. They don't always change in one in one direction. If that if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. I think I I really appreciate that uh, bit there because yes, we do kind of think of it kind of like in this linear fashion of you know this kind of uh, kind of like a you know, brick by brick by brick, you know, a little bit better every century, and then we get to the Enlightenment, and then we get to you know whatever. And there's certainly some of that, but it really is. I think it's important to show like. In some ways, mm-hmm. earlier periods were better than periods after them, and then it got better again, and then it got worse. There's a kind of kind of an up and down of sorts, and yeah. obviously there are maybe more stretches where it's better and things like that. But I I think it, at least for me, it gives me a, a much deeper uh, admiration and respect for people groups and 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 certain you know empires or states that. We're dealing with that uh, 1,500 years ago, right? And yeah. you see these kind of flattened, one-dimensional ways of viewing an empire or a ruler is not uh, <laughs> its not accurate. It's not very interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important to note about the, the nonlinear fashion of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, yeah, but it's, it's also sort of interesting thinking about the way different groups sort of play into each other. I mean, so so um, one one of the most both fa- fascinating but sort of weird sort of moments in this whole process is when so um, Charlemagne's son L- Louis the Pious, you know, one um, his chaplain who's a, who's a guy a guy called Bodo, sort of very Christian figure, you know, um, converts converts to Judaism and runs away to to Muslim Spain. Changes his name, goes Eliezer, gets married, and there's this whole sort of dynamic where, like, this is this is very, both very embarrassing, sort of for you know, for you know, for the Carolingians, right? Kind of one one of our top guys converted to Judaism, ran ran away to Cordoba. That's that's, but it's like, like a, kind of, but, it's like yeah. a pastor's son becoming an atheist or something. Exactly right, <laughs> yeah, and, again, and like, and the, but but also and there's the and then there's this fascinating where sort of yes, you know, so this guy arrives in Cordoba and immediately begins. Telling sort of the 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 emir there sort of that well you know you need you need to punish the Christians you know punish, and and as far as we can tell like sort of the you know, the emir doesn't the Muslim emir doesn't really kind of doesn't really do any do any any at all but there's you end up with these like strange people who don't you know 
feel you know people who think think about their beliefs and then do then do interesting novel things with them that kind of takes them in complicated places and then ends up with them in, in strange you know both uh, both theologically and and physically in in you know very very far away from where where they began. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's 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 so interesting how there's there's probably many accounts like that. So tell us about the beginning of the Abbasid-Carolingian relations, mid eighth century, uh, how it starts, and how there's there's this political and military alliance that forms with the Abbasids against the Umayyads and the uh, Byzantine Empire. Well, so yeah, so uh, yeah, so that's so um, yeah, so so basically, so this uh, this diplomacy sort of starts generational and you know, also before Charlemagne and Harun al-Rashid. So it's so it starts with um, with Charlemagne's father, a um, uh, guy, uh, guy called Pippin III, or also known as Pippin the Short, um, and with um, with uh, you know, we, don't, we don't actually know how um, how tall he was, which uh, which, which, is, which is a shame. But then uh, the um, and Harun al-Rashid's um, grand grandfather uh, Al Mansur, um, and there's um, yeah, and there's long been this idea. That this is this is kind of this is this is grand alliance system between sort of the Carolingians on the one hand and the Abbasids on the other hand, and they're they're both kind of they're interested in opposing the Byzantines, but also as, as we say the, the 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 Muslims in Spain. And this is actually actually something I I want I want to push against because I I think I think I uh, I don't think it's it's there's there's actually very much to it, and it. So, uh, so this idea first comes in the 1930s, where there's a scholar called Francis Buckler who writes a big book where he lays out this bit, this theory. There's a grand alliance system, um, and I think, I think you know, and, and, it, and people go for it for a couple of reasons. First, it gives you a nice rational reason for why this diplomacy should be should be happening, um, and it's but also also sort of uh, Buckler is is a specialist in is in uh, in in Asia in Islamic stuff, and he's. He's able to give a plausible idea of kind of what's what what are people like Harun Rashid, what are people like Harun Rashid's grandfather Al Mansur up to, um, and you know, the problem is well, firstly we don't actually have any sources from the period that say that that's what's happening. Secondly, kind of the dates in which sort of these alliances are meant to be happening and these wars are meant to be, don't re- don't really kind of line up. Uh, I'd also say that sort of Buckler is is really a specialist in nineteenth century India, so he, he doesn't. Necessarily, particularly, have a great deal of that that much insight about about the eighth century, and so what so what I think instead is 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 happening is that there's a, there's an interesting parallel between Pippin the Short and Almansa, which is they both kind of come in right as their families have just seized power. So Pippin is the first Carolingian king. He overthrows the the the, the last Merovingian in seven five one, makes himself king. Almansur is, you know, his his older brother is is the first Abbasid caliph, and then he takes over relatively quickly. And I, there's something of the Stalin about Almansur. He's he's a seriously scary operator, right? He he after the revolution, he he mops up all the other leading revolutionaries more or less, kind of centralizing power in his hands. He's a ruthless, ruthless uh, figure. Pippin himself is no is 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 no no teddy bear. And I, and so so I think in a large large of kind of what's really happened here is less. A grand alliance against uh, you know, the against uh, you know, uh, against the Umayyads of Spain and Byzantium, and more actually a kind of a way for like two two new men, two kind of new regimes to really cement their position by kind of by reaching re- by uh, by uh, reaching out to each other. And this is 
something kind of we see like both both rulers do elsewhere. So uh, Pippin is doing is doing business with Byzantium. Like it's, it's one of the reasons the alliance system doesn't really work because Pippin's actually got really good relations with Byzantium. He's he's sending em- embassies back and forth all all, all the time. He gets a. Uh, the, the Emperor Byzantium sends him a wonderful water organ. It's kind of easy. He, he, you know, he loves it. Um, meanwhile, Almansur is doing business with everyone from Sudan to China. So, so there's there's a kind of so there's a real kind of sense in which in which this this prestige diplomacy is is in play. They are kind of, and that's that's where that kind of that's that's that relationship starts in the middle of, in the in 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 the middle of the of the uh, of the eighth century. So part of, I guess, the aspects of diplomacy, and it's one of the biggest, uh, I guess, the kind of things that's alluded to from the beginning is we've talked about it a little bit, but maybe uh, you know you, you can uh, expand on a little bit more here. Is this importance of receiving and giving gifts between the Muslim mm-hmm. world and the Carolingians, and obviously there's the significance of the gift of an elephant, as is shown on the cover, so beautifully so. Uh, so. You can talk about the elephant. You can talk about what that is or what, what was important about it. it. Just generally why gift giving was important. Yeah. But then what I remember there's a certain there's a couple of pages where you specifically address like this particular elephant and what that means and what it was. Yeah. So yeah, tell us about that yeah. element of it. Absolutely. And the, you know, so I uh so I mentioned there aren't there aren't any sources that say that Charlemagne is trying to do a military alliance or anything like that. So we have precisely one source written by a contemporary that that tells us why Charlemagne got got in touch with Harun al-Rashid, and this is the biography written by his courtier Einhard. And Einhard says Charlemagne got in touch with with Harun al-Rashid because he wanted an elephant. And I, and I think that's, that's in a way is one of the things that really fascinates is that kind of right right at the heart of this diplomacy is the fact that Charlemagne wants an elephant. And I. I always like to kind of picture this, right? Yeah, Harun al-Rashid is one of the most powerful men in the world. And this guy from way out, way out west sends this message completely out of the blue, right? They've got no, they've had no previous communication between these two rulers. Hello, can I have an elephant? And like, am I, right? I mean, like, I mean, like just like sort of, right? And the kind of, and amazingly, Harun al-Rashid says yes. But like, uh, but, uh, but like the, and, and, I, and, and, I, and I think there's a real, te- a real temptation in the scholars to say, oh, well, it's not really about the elephants. Is there's some sort of clever military strategy here, or there's some sort of? And I, and I think no, no, no. It, it, the elephant's right at the heart of it, right? Other stuff comes into it, but like Charlemagne wants an elephant, right? And that's and um, and yeah, and that's the elephants. The elephant masses. Um, well, well, because how many people have an elephant? Exactly. <laughs> if, exactly. If you're right. in the Western there's, world, it, we don't have elephants in the West. Like, it's like, yeah. oh, that would be like, wait, how did? Who gave you that one? How did you get that? What is that saying about you? Wow! Like you must like there's a there's a whole like kind of like a, a braggadocious vibrato oh, there. Absolutely, uh, absolutely, and 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 the elephant makes an impression, right? The um, yeah, you know, the elephant goes on on display at you know at you know, at the palace in the menagerie. And one thing that so one of my favorite kind of texts is um, so it's written a couple you know. About, about fifteen years later, and there's this there's this Irish uh, Irish monk who writes the geography of the world, um, and yeah, when he's he he mentions a fact that uh, an ancient Roman sort of says about elephants, and he says, but but we know that this is wrong because um because yeah, you know, 
so many people saw Charlemagne's elephant, and that the, and that elephant was different, right? And so it's like it's not just like a bunch of a bunch of it's not just Charlemagne and his cronies, right? People are coming to see this elephant, right? Course, and they're kind of yeah. that's of it's a big deal, right? Yeah, and they're kind of and it's and that's and that's the uh, yeah. So there's and and yeah, and this and Charlemagne asked for this elephant in about seven ninety seven, and that's a point where he is kind of. Regime is starting to change. He's not. He's no longer just a conquering warlord. He is starting to get so much more ambitious about what he's trying. What he's trying to do, and I think that elephant is is part of it. Right? He's he's trying to he's trying to tell the Frankish people. He's trying to tell his counts. He's trying to like we're doing something special here, right? Yeah, we are. We are kind of doing something now. You are. You are. You are part of something, right? We're gonna. We're gonna do something big. And uh, you. Yeah, and one of the things that helps here is. Um, one of the big associations that people, that people are going to have with elephants is is kind of with the Romans. So, um, so there's an idea that you know, the Emperor Augustus he had elephants, and like you know, Charlemagne is about to be is about to be you know emperor. He is kind of he's got elephants. There's a there's something a little bit Roman about it. There's something. Mm-hmm. It also matters. It's it's from a long way away, and that kind of again, of course, kind of, yeah, yeah. He's you know he's he's making the world small, but while also also you know yeah, and that kind of. So that that elephant really really matters at the point there, oh, but yeah, but in a way that's that's kind of the straightforward end of it, right? Yeah, I mean we we yeah we it's it's easy it, we can sort of see what why does Charlemagne want want elephants? You know, and and, and in a way it's sort of the trickier bit the trickier end of that is well why does Harun Al Rashid want want to give Charlemagne uh-huh. an yeah. elephant? Right, like kind of what's you know it's and I and I think but I think in a way kind of there's um a big part of this is. Harun al-Rashid showing what he can afford to give away, right? He's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you're the guy who got an elephant. I'm the guy who can give you away an elephant. Right? I, I got a, a surplus of elephants over here. Exactly. So, right. <laughs> and, you know, so particularly because I, I, I suspect that's not actually true, right? I, I don't think Harun al-Rashid has many elephants. So the, um, so the Franks the image. Say, yeah, exactly. I mean, the Franks say this is his only elephant. I'm not, I'm mm. not sure that's true. But, like, mm. certainly, like, he probably d- – he. He has at most single single digits worth of elephants, right? And this is and and he's and he's yeah, which I, I mean, and I think most of us would agree that single digit number of elephants would be entirely satisfactory. But you know, kind of, yeah, we're not we don't rule half half of Asia, so you know. But um, <laughs> but like yeah, but he's but he's um, but yeah, and I think I mean part of the context here is that right right at this point, Harun's having real trouble with his provinces in India, kind of, and that's you know, so so I think I think in a way, kind of. Harun Rashid is saying to his people, "Look, right? I'm so confident. I'm so rich. I can give away an elephant, even when kind of things are looking a little bit dicey in India. I can, I can still do that. And that's and like and 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 there's there's a whole bunch of things happening there for Harun. Like there's an idea of um, so previous Persian rulers after whom the Abbasids kind of model themselves. They have elephants, but also that." Elephants are something that belong to caliphs. So, like you know, the early caliphs, Caliph Umar, for example, who was a really important figure. He, you know, elephants belong to him, and he he gets to choose how to dispose of them. And I think kind of Harun Al Rashid is sort of saying, you know, I'm look at me, I'm I'm the guy who has the elephants. I'm the guy who's allowed to dispose of elephants. And there and there's a real kind of you know, so so like elephants specifically, but gifts in general are kind of are really part of that. And you and you, and you, you know. And the elephants guy catching one. I mean, that's that's all Charlemagne asked for. It's it's a lot of fun, right? And but like um, but yeah. But there's also a huge range of other stuff. So um, Harun sends cocks, for example. There's a uh, yeah, and then, I mean, one of my favorite in, in is when there's a 
one of the rulers of, of Muslim Spain sends Charlemagne's grandson camels. And I, I got way kind of upset. Like, and, and like, you know, there's, there's a whole range of these, I, I, have, I have stuff that moves and like, it's, you know, and, you know, and, and the gift kind of, you, 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 you communicate a lot of different things with the gift. And I, I mean, one of my favorite examples with this is, is sort of around about the same time, um, Charlemagne conquers uh, people called the Avars. And they, and they, and they kind of, they're in roughly modern Hungary, kind of south, south, yes, you know, conquers them. They're fabulously wealthy. Um, and following the conquest, he starts sending out sort of gifts from, you know, you know from, from this conquered territory to other rulers. So he sends them to a bunch of kings in England, that kind of thing. Mm. And I love kind of how that works on so many levels, right? You're, on the one hand, you know, he looks generous because he's giving people stuff. On the other hand, he looks powerful because he's giving he's giving people stuff that he took from someone else. Mm-hmm. Like and you know, and, and he kind of he look you know and he looks he looks wealthy, he looks powerful. Like and that's you know, and, and I think I think these gifts have so many sort of layers to them mm-hmm. that kind of mm-hmm. depend on the context, but they're right at the heart of Blenheim in this period. Mm-hmm. And 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 you know, and I'm and I'm aware I'm talking a lot here, but like no, no, uh, no, there's no. um I mean that's I mean that's the thing we still we still see in the modern world. And this um uh there was um back in ooh, I want to say about 2009. So there was there was a bit of an incident in the in the British in, in the British newspapers when there was um, um so uh, then British Prime Minister Gordon Brown um, gave to um, President Obama uh, a pen made from the wood of the um, HMS Victory, which was near the battleship that Nelson Nelson used at the Battle of Trafalgar. It was kind of a real kind of part of British history. Um, and Obama and gave so, like some DVDs or something like that. Exactly, and, was, and that kind of and like you know, I mean, it was a it was a storm and a teacup, but also it was kind of it was a real kind of like the gift has not been matched. You know, the gift has not been kind of like you know what is what what, what is happening. Yeah, you know, and it was it was kind of it was a you know, and like it, it blew over, but like kind of there was a there was the, like you know, and that I mean obviously that's a much slower level, but kind of yeah, you know, we 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 still we still pay attention to gifts. So we, yeah, you know, we still pay attention to diplomatic gifts, right? Uh, <laughs> I do remember this. I remember. I remember thinking of it as very amusing, and yeah. also very American, right? Like, I mean, that's very um, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah. I mean, but on, yeah, but on, on the other hand, like, in in a weird sort of way, actually, not you know, quite shrewd in a way. If you th- if you think about kind of one of the most important things about about the United States is its cultural kind of power, right? Kind of one. Uh, yeah, I mean, one thing that yeah means the United States has friends across the world is. People adore kind of you know the television it it, 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 it produces you know and I think, I think among the DVDs were things like The Wire things like kind of that kind of cultural I mean yeah when when you know kind of places like Baltimore are, are on the map across you know across, you know, the across the world because of that you know so like so on the one hand there was there was a there was a disconnect but on the other hand it was it was in many ways quite a shrewd sort of acknowledgement of like you know the, a statement of kind of watch of of the of sources of of American power and you. If we think, and yeah, if we think about kind of that's the way in which someone, people like Charlemagne, people like Harun Rashid, are the messages they're communicating with their their choice of gifts has, you know, there's there's a sort of yeah, you know, there's there there are, there are there are sort of interesting sort of interpretive layers here. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that for sure. I mean, I think that there's you know, given a a, you know, a, a few DVDs, it's like ah, oh, what the there's no any, but it's on the other hand, it's like yeah, but you know, the United States. I mean, that's where. You know Hollywood is. That's where yep. that's, you know, that's where cinema started. There's the impact there globally, and then you know 
the idea of kind of capitalism and communism or not communism, capitalism and how we have, you know, resisted a lot of things um, and how this is kind of supreme at the, at the time and mm-hmm. how, and then, right. And then, well, you, know, you can give any DVDs, but you're giving certain ones. What are you trying to say? Like, well, I mean, The Wire is the best show ever made. So it's like one of, one of those things where it's like, yeah, but I'm going to give you something about like how things are in, you know, tough areas of, of the United Yeah, the United States is great, but also we have some really tough parts of the country as well and tough mm-hmm. parts of a city. And so, yeah, it is interesting how there's layers to, to all of these yeah. things. Absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, I mean, certainly kind of, the, you know, in, in Britain, kind of things like the why, like people, people adore that stuff. And it's the idea of kind of culture, like, you know, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it's one of the strongest kind of rebuttals the United States can make to us. Like, we are, we are a country of culture and that kind of, and that's, that, and, and, and that's, you know, and that's something that sort of someone, you know, like, you know, that's, that's one of the statements that someone like Haruna Rashid is making sort of, particularly when, when he sends, a very elaborate clock, for example, like yeah. this is, you know, I rule a place of culture, of technology, of kind of this is, mm-hmm. yeah, and that that's a real, yeah, the kind of, and that's, and that's, that's one of the things you're, you're, you know, you, you communicate with the gift, right? The kind of the, that's, you know, this is, you know, the, like, you know, the, um, you know, we are, we are the people, you know, who make, who make the clocks. We are the people who, you know, who have, you know, who, you know, who, who have, you know, have the wealth you want. And that, and that's really kind of in, yeah, that one one things you you're you're conveying with that gift. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's always a lot of meaning, whether people recognize it or not. Of, of you could give so many things, but you decide to give that. And there's there's something more. Yeah. And there, I mean, I, I mean, of course, of course, sometimes it's interesting when like the the perception of the gifts don't match up. And that's, I mean, one thing I find I found very interesting. I mentioned um, ruler of Muslim Spain who gives um, Charlemagne's grandson Charles the Bald camels. And one one things I find interesting about camels is like, well. What are you saying when you say something with camels, right? Or, or rather, like, because like there's like there's there's quite a large cultural gap between sort of you know kind of what you know. So you know, and I and I think you know. So um, so for for the rule of the state, like camels are a state a statement of Arab identity. There are state there are statements of wealth. There are state kind of there's you know there's kind of there's you know whereas whereas for, you know someone like Charlemagne's grandson, like he's probably thinking in more biblical terms, right? He's thinking of things like Queen of Sheba. He's kind of that's. That's the kind of, and that's yeah. You know, so there's, so it it works as a gift, but like it's probably being sent and received on very different registers, and there are, and like, and there are there are potentially kind of interesting sort of you know, differences that kind of happen that happen and that happen in play when that when that happens. Mm, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting how you have these you know, different uh, messages sent with with gifts. So let's talk about uh, just real quick about you talk about. The environment and the various marches, such as the mm. Spanish march, et cetera. There's many marches with very many uh, multi-ethnic zones. Uh, it's kind of give the layout of how things worked within this context. Absolutely. So, as mentioned before, the um, yeah the, the Carolingian Empire and uh, and and Muslim Spain they're they're sort of neighbors, but they don't they don't kind of come to a clear line where they meet. Rather, it's more of a frontier zone, and it's it's one of those wonderfully ambiguous and complicated places where sort of you know there's you know the you, you have reality as it's perceived in Cordoba, and you have reality as it's perceived in Arkan. But in in this sort of middle zone, you have these sort of two marcher areas that kind of 
border on, on each other. And there, kind of reality gets a little bit, a little bit more complicated and a little bit more fluid. So, um, so on the on the on the Carolingian side, we have what we what we often call the Spanish March or the, the Marca Hispanica, and this is a region that sort of starts to kind of get organized in the 780s by the Carolingians, and it's sort of basically the front their frontier region, and it's sort of it's south of the Pyrenees. Going going down to the the Ebro River Valley, and the, and then on the on the on the other side you have uh, what's you know what's what the Muslims call the Upper March. And that's you know, so from from their perspective, that's that's the Northern March, and that's kind of on the Ebro River Valley. Um, and that's and and these are yeah, that's kind of based, and that, it's an interesting area because it's it's a very rich and fertile area of Spain with a lot of old Roman cities kind of there. But these are two ambiguous areas which. Don't always sort of pay attention to what 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 kings or what emirs are telling them to do. There are a lot of very ind- independent-minded uh, um, military military figures who are embedded in that in that region who have been there for a long time. But also, it's a very kind of multi-ethnic region. So you you have population of Goths and Basques who are kind of there, sort of being and yeah, and they and they you know and who are on either either side either side of kind of of. And the, of, and the, of, of this frontier, some some of them are Christian, some of them have converted to Islam. You also have uh, settlers from outside, so you have Franks coming you know, coming uh, coming down from the north who have been settled following sort of Carolingian expansion, and you also have Arabs and Berbers, kind of you know sort of you know setting in. And these, you know, and conflict doesn't necessarily break down on ethnic lines, but it, it adds a level of complexity because it means you have. These different families, different groups, who are all all in this area, and they're in the and that Korea, and that's so it's a very sort of it's a fascinating space. There's a, there's a bit of there's a bit of the Wild West about it, kind of that's you know there's but it's you know it, it's a very kind of fluid space, and people in the area tend to be quite comfortable about sort of talking to each other, to people across the line. They're often they often intermarry, they often they often they often do visit the show, and that kind of creates a space that's both kind of uh, that's you know that's. Both, you know, it's vital for for both the Carolingians and the Amaya that it exists. That's their their buffer zone, their shock zone. But it's also a bit of a, occasionally a bit of a headache because you know because the, yeah, the people on that frontier don't necessarily do what what they're supposed to do. Yeah, you spent two long chapters of, um, on the relationship with the Umayyads and the Carolingians in the in, in various points. So maybe just kind of you know just briefly i mean obviously folks can read the book but i guess this idea of there was civil war for the umayyads for independence during the 8th century and then it seems and there's a obviously there's going to be a relationship if there's kind of infighting there but then the kind of relationship with the carolingians and the umayyads in the middle of the 9th century so we're talking you know 1840s 1850s looks different although maybe some similarities What's this kind of arc, I guess, of the Umayyads yeah. within themselves, but then how they're interacting with the nearby Carolingians, you know, throughout, you know, I guess about a century of time. Yeah, and absolutely. And so the um so so the constant here is that throughout this period, they're both sort of in a way among each other's most dangerous neighbors. And that's and that's sort of that's the kind of constant here. They've they they they've, they've always always got to think about kind of but both sides have always got to pay attention to each other and what watch out for each other. But what changes is kind of is 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 sort of where the initiative lies. So in this earlier periods, starting off in the seven seventies, but really intensifying in the seven nineties, in the eight hundreds, 
the Carolingians are the ones who are normally on the offensive. They are looking to expand and into, uh, further into Spain. They are taking advantage of civil war within within Muslim Spain. Mm. They, they, they make a lot of Muslim allies on the frontier, and they're trying to use those alliances to kind of to project power further south. And, you know, and you know, they have some successes. The, the big one is they capture Barcelona in, in 801, and that's that, and that kind of and that sort of kind of creates shit, you know, like sets the tone of it. Sort of, you know, the the Umayyads are often trying to find ways to make peace. The Carolingians are on the what's what changes is is sort of where that where is is a kind of change in the, in the balance of power, and the um and that's that's partly. The first half of the ninth century, you have a couple of very long reigns uh, among the Umayyads, which are comparatively stable. They're kind of there, there are fewer civil wars. They've got they've got things more together. But what really changes is on the Carolingian side, sort of um, particularly starting from from the from the thirties. You have a series of civil wars that kind of that really break break the unity of of the Franks. Uh, from eight eight forty, the empire is. More or less permanently divided between um, the grand uh, the grandsons of, uh, of Charlemagne, and that's again kind of creates a dynamic whereby you know that whoever's you know um, the 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 kingdom of the West Franks, which is the one that borders Spain, as well as thinking about Spain, they've also got to think about their brothers on the on the other side, and that and their resources have also been reduced, and that kind of and because of that, the dynamic changes whereby suddenly the rulers of Spain have. The rulers of Muslim Spain have much more of a free hand as, as a consequence, and that kind of so there's so there's there's a shift in the in the balance of power which has real impact on on the way on the, the way these uh, that this diplomacy plays out. And I guess how and, and why does it end towards the back half of the ninth century? So you know the, there it comes it comes to a type of end. What what kind of uh what what happens? Where does it go wrong? I guess. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sort of. Um, Great question. So it, it it ends sadly not 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 with a bang, but rather with with a whimper. Um, is is kind of is is sort of a, so um so basically the second well, the last third of the ninth century is not a good time politically for either uh, yeah, for either policy and like and there's a real kind of breakdown in kind of in 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 control and that and this is particularly noticeable in Muslim Spain from about eight sixties eight seventies. The Umayyads are having trouble, uh, you know, kind of um, exerting control much beyond their capital. There's, there's, a, you know, there's a couple of different different things happening, and that kind of, and given so much of the relationship between the Umayyads and Carolingians is based on each other's capacity to cause each other real harm. Like, kind of, if the Umayyads aren't 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 able to sort of act act aggressively or cause or cause difficulty, that kind of reduces sort of. The Franks incentive to do to do business with them. On the on the other hand, kind of the Franks have their own sort of dynamic happening, where like Charles the Bald, Charlemagne's grandson, is is more powerful than ever, but he he's much more interested in fighting his brothers than he is in fighting Spain. So so long as things are quiet in Spain, he's gonna he's gonna go and fight and, and fight his brothers for you know for, for control of of the rest of the, of the Carolingian Empire, and they, and they and basically kind of you have. And the and, and you get similar dynamic in the caliphate, where like again you you have crisis, political crisis in the centre, and because everyone's experiencing political crisis, that kind of 
really sort of reduces the amount the amount of uh, the amount of 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 any, that anyone's interested in doing in in in, uh, in doing diplomacy. And that so by when the tenth century comes along, uh, the Umayyads have regained control. Abdul Rahman III has proclaimed himself caliph. They are more powerful than they've ever been. But the Carolingians are in major are in major meltdown crisis mode, and that and, and I think that really sort of takes the energy out of out of this out of uh, 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 out of out of this this relationship. Hmm. One of the last chapters in the book, you talk about how the Central Mediterranean became a central interest, <laughs> and uh, and I guess talk about why there was I guess a kind of shift there, or maybe not a shift, but more of a why this was also uh, of interest as well, seemingly as a just geographically as a kind of in between uh, the the Umayyads and the Abbasids, you know, of course. And so, but what, what was the kind of intention there between shifting on the Central Mediterranean? Yeah, absolutely. So we we tend to think of Charlemagne as a European figure, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of his you know, his, his, his empires in Europe. He's sometimes described as the father of Europe. There's a whole kind of that that to it, and I think one of the things we, we often forget is that actually, in many ways, this is still a world that's organised around the Mediterranean. Like there, there's this whole idea that sort of Charlemagne marks a break from that world, but um, but actually, you know, he's he rules most of Italy. He's kind of he's getting you know, and, um, he's getting increasingly involved in the Mediterranean. There's a real kind of point in the seven nineties, eight hundreds, where he you know, he's effectively just expanding further and further south. And North Africa is increasingly on his radar, and there, yeah, and there's and there's and 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 it makes sense, you know, both on a geographical scale. Like he's he's active in the Mediterranean. He's yeah. Once you're fighting pirates in Majorca, or you have authority, you're, you're, you've growing authority in Corsica and Sardinia. You, you're not the north coast of Africa really isn't isn't that far away. Mm-hmm. But also, this is a world that kind of that means a lot to Charlemagne as a Christian, right? The Majority of the population in North, in in a place like North Africa, particularly if we're thinking about what's now Tunisia, is still Christian at this point. Charlemagne's very interested in that Christian population. We know he's sending gifts and alms to them, and 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 you know he's in contact with their bishops. But it's all, and it and it's a landscape that mean, that means a lot to him because you know there are kind of a lot of you know you know you know historically kind of North Africa has been really important for Christian development. So you think about. Someone like Augustine, for example, right? He's you know, he's based in Africa. That kind of this is so this is this is this is a landscape that kind of feels is is part of you know, Charlemagne's mind space as much as say Spain is, for example. So mm. and you know, so and so, so, so what you know, so what um, the way we see this play out is we see um, Charlemagne in contact with the Muslim ruler of what's effectively uh, effectively uh, uh, Tunisia. They're sending each other gifts. There's kind of there's line there's lines there's lines of contact and, and communication happening here. It's it doesn't last very long. Kind of there's basically there's 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 a revolution in North Africa that means kind of Charlemagne's contact gets overthrown and sort of and there's yeah and that and that's that, but like but Charlemagne and the Carolingians are they're interested in, in in North Africa and they'd they'd like to you know given the opportunity they'd like to be it's they'd like to be to be uh, to be more involved and there's. And you know, and and we can see those connections moving out. People are moving from place to place. Like African coins are showing up in in the Frankish world. This is like this is yeah. This this is the, the these are spaces that are that are interconnected. And and had Charlemagne had his had his way, that that have been that have been a lot more contact than the, the you know, than the you know, than 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 there actually than there actually was. But there is 
contact there most definitely is mm. the uh, but uh, yeah I mean but uh, of course you know, the North Africa is not is not you know, is is not is not where that ends so um so basically so the six nineties um, uh, Muslim armies capture Carthage North Africa and very very slowly kind of there's there's ex- there's expansion north so they go west and 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 invade invade Spain. But they also they they also go north. In the course of the ninth century, there's um, there's uh, the, um, the, the they conquer Sicily. But you also start getting um, uh, Muslim bases on the Italian mainland, mm. and some and some and some of these bases are kind of are connected to Muslim rulers elsewhere. Some are more like Viking bands. So you get yeah, there's so there's a big one um, at at the city of Bari in. Um, in south uh, in uh, southeast Italy, where effectively they're doing their own thing, they're, they're, they're pirates, they're raiders, but they're all, they've, they've effectively set up their own their own city state in the area. And there's and 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 it's and it's a re- it's a really interesting environment. So, you know, southern Italy, it's a bit like the Spanish marches. There's people with all all different uh, different ethnic groups there. There's you know there's a huge kaleidoscope of different city states in, in the area, and yeah, and they're, yeah, they're feuding with each other. They're also doing business with each other. And, and the Muslims kind of fit in here, right? Kind of, yeah. There's, you know, they're not, you know, everyone's everyone's not always always friendly, but you, know, other powers make alliances with them. Naples does business with them all the time. There's a real, there's connections there. And and what I find interesting here is, you know, and one of the things I've been emphasizing sort of you know, throughout this book and throughout this chat is that the you know, the Carolingians are often quite up for doing business with with, with Muslims, mm. and in southern Italy they are precisely not like they are kind of it's it's. Yeah, the the Carolingians who are based in Italy, so that's Lothar, um, who is Charlemagne's grandson, and then Lothar's son, Louis the Second, are kind of build their regimes around fighting Muslims, and that kind of and 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 one of these I really want to get because because people normally take that for granted, right? You know, kind of when when we write the history, it's like oh yeah, Christians, Muslims, they must hate each other, they must be fighting each other all the time, right? That kind of that's mm-hmm. it seems it seems straightforward. Um, but what I want to say is that, well, given that what we know elsewhere, it's really not straightforward. So what, why does it happen here? And, and what I try and argue is that there's something very specific happening in Italy, which is the, um, you know, the Carolingians are acting to protect the Pope in Rome. And that's very important for the Carolingians. They, it's kind of the, both on reasons of piety, but also because that's the Carolingian brand, right? They, they're the guys who protect the Pope. Um, but also like, for the Carolingians, the Muslims are more useful as an enemy in Italy than they are, yeah, because they you can then use them as a rallying cry to like gather all the Christians of Italy and say, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna fight the Muslims together. Mm. Yeah, said 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 Christian Italians are not always very on board with that. Yeah, they're they're often they're often very happy to cut you know, cut deals with, with Muslims instead. But there's a there's a there's a very but what I really want to prod at and say is that look, it's it's we have to explain why. The Carolingians are fighting are fighting Muslims here, and then, you know, and, and you know, there, and that's because Italy is different to Spain in this in this regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's super important, and that was definitely the takeaway I got from the book and in, in reading, reading it, and 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 throughout throughout the book is it's complicated. It's not as easy of a you know streamlined narrative as we want, and I think that that's important for people to really to really get. the uh, The last question I have for you is. What is it about uh, this time period in these regions that is lasting for us in modern times 
that helps us understand the historical period, the 8th and ninth centuries between Christian and Muslim worlds. But what's the kind of ripple effect that has, you know, for, for us to understand and, and for those regions, you know, even still today? No. Excellent, excellent question. So I think, I think, I think sort of, so for, for thinking about the period in question, I think, you know, the, one of the I want to emphasize is that this is, this is a world where, where people talk to each other. This is a world where people travel, where, where, where people who are very, very different from each other can talk to each other and do business. This is not a, a world where everyone stays, stays in their village. And it's not a world where people struggle. Mm. So that, you know, or where, where the idea of of, talk, of talking to people who are very different to you is 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 unknown. Mm-hmm. But I think I think for us today, what I find kind of most interesting is the way it can, the way this is a subject that brings both ideology and pragmatism together. Because mm. it's yeah, I mean yeah, I mean because we can start from the fact that they clearly can do business with each other, right? But this is right. you know we 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 have the facts of the matter, of course. But this is a world where like you know. Things like faith, things like that, they they matter deeply and intimately, and and a lot of those, a lot of the things from that faith sort of are, are, t- are telling the various participants that they shouldn't, they shouldn't, uh, they shouldn't be, be doing business with each other, and and the, yeah, and I, I find and I find this what's so fascinating here is the way in which they you know, they they find ways to make it work. Right, there are there are spaces where ideology and pragmatism meet. Where you can you can make that happen, and I, and I think that's yeah. You know, in, in international relations today, we keep being told that we're going into a multipolar world, right? That this is a yeah, this is an age where you know, where yeah, you know, we've had this period where the, the United States was the one great power of the world. Now we're going to a world where like China is here, where there's sort of you know, brick powers are here, so the European Union is here. This is a this is a multipolar world, and I. And the and and I, and I think I think it's if that you know we've we've been used to, in the in the twenty in twentieth century and twenty first century to an idea. I, th- I think I think you said this earlier earlier in this chat. There is a way you do diplomacy. There is there is a way that you do it, and there is a way that you think about it, and there is a way that you organize it. So there's 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 a logistics thing, a practical thing, but there's also an idea of what diplomacy is that runs behind it. And we've kind of taken it for granted that everyone involved in that is starting from the same place. Uh, and I and I I think that if we are going into a multipolar world, we might have to rethink that assumption. We might find we might find that you know when we when we do business you know when we do business with sort of people who are powers who are very different from us, who are coming from very different places, that we we might have to kind of to see you know, to reckon with. Ideas of doing diplomacy that are that are apparently very different to what we're, to what we're used to, and I, and what I find so interesting about Christian and Muslim diplomacy from from, from the period I study is that that maybe gives us a bit of a clue as to how we might go about doing that, and 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 indeed just open up, show us that this is a thing that we can do. That's mm-hmm. that's you know, if you know, if they can do it, we can do it, mm-hmm. and yeah, and that's and and that I think is is sort of is the number one sort of takeaway point I, I think I'd, I'd I'd want to make. I, I firmly agree. That comes through at least for me, loud and clear in the book, and uh, hopefully for for listeners in the conversation. Uh, the book is called "The Emperor and the Elephant: Christians and Muslims in the Age of Charlemagne." It's through Princeton University Press. Uh, Sam, this was so much fun. Uh, is there any place you'd like to point people to, whether your research or for you personally, or 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 just the book? 
Well, so I mean, um, so I'd you know, this has been an absolute blast. Um, if you if you ha- if you uh, uh, if you if you you haven't yet yet got sick of me from this uh, from this chat or or from from from, from reading this book, I uh, I'm also a regular contri- contributor to um, to the blog, uh, so, uh, the Historian Sketchpad, which is down as uh, salutamundo.com, um, uh, where I uh, I blog every and uh, every fortnight, talking about sort of what, I, what I'm working on the, at the moment, what I'm thinking about. So you can, uh, so if you if you so if, if you'd like like to hear more, you can uh, you can you can uh, you can read more more of my stuff there. Mm, excellent. No, yeah, that's that's wonderful. Uh, Sam, this was so much fun. I really really enjoyed this. I really like uh, not only understanding history and things like that but getting into the details in ways that make sense for for people now and, and really see the value of it and do it so well in your book and you do it so well in the conversation and so uh just really really grateful for you coming on no and thanks so much and thank you so much for the invitation i've had an absolute blast yeah, absolutely <laughs>